Boyd Vardy is one of the most interesting human beings I have ever met in my life because he spends his life tracking lions for a safari operation that he is a part of in South Africa. And they don't hunt the lions, they just find the lions and then they tell the safari guides to go send the trucks out there and allow people to take pictures and experience what it's like to see a lion in the wild. But not only is he a lion tracker, he's able to use that as a metaphor for tracking all of the pathways in our own life. I've learned a ton from him. His stories are amazing, and I can't wait to introduce you to him on this podcast. But before we get started with Lion Tracker Boyd Vardy, I want to talk to you guys about Noni Juice. My uncle, David Marcus, started a Noni Juice company out in Hawaii, and I would go out there to see him, and I would go see the Noni trees, and Noni is a really interesting fruit. Now, it doesn't have the best smell when it's in the wild, but the juice when it's created properly, like the company Noni New Age that I'm working with now that has Tahitian Noni juice, it is one of the most healthful, nutrient-dense products, period. I mean, the benefits for Noni as it relates to the gut, as it relates to your immune function, as it relates to just overall health, is really overwhelming. And it's been something that fortunately, I've been able to engage with and utilize for many years. But my uncle, He's moved on and the farm isn't the same anymore, so my supply of Noni juice ran dry. Until now, where I started to partner with Noni New Age so I could get that good Noni juice back in my life. And if you guys haven't tried it, I really encourage you guys to give it a go. They've done a great job with the taste. They even have products that they mix with collagen. And it's really bringing Noni to the next level. And it's just something that is really accretive to your health in a universal perspective. So if you're interested, go to NoniNewAge.com. That's N-O-N-I NewAge.com slash Aubrey. And that'll save you 15% and give you free shipping. NoniNewAge.com slash Aubrey for 15% off and free shipping. Thanks, fam. And here we are. How are you, mate? Yeah, great to be here with you, man. Yeah. yeah. Really cool. Are, in South Africa, do you call each other mate? um that's that's more of an english thing and an aussie thing i think what um, do you guys say what do we say there's a i mean there's dude there's brew there's bra is a big bra. one yeah brew is a big one brew hey brew yeah <laughs> hey brew um <laughs> um weirdly china is quite a big one in south africa it's you like, just call a random like person. So, no, someone would be your China, which means they're your friend. Like, hey, my China. You mean like that in the porcelain sense, or like in the, uh, no in one the, knows. Not it's like no one knows. Sense. It's no, not in the country sense. All the porcelain sense is like <laughs> so, it's, it's like super random. Just my China is my friend. <laughs> hey, China. <laughs> uh, that's rad. A lot of people would call each other mfoetutu, which is the Zulu term for brother. Yeah. So it's like a term of endearment if you if you like rapping with someone who's uh, who you have a relationship with. You say. What are you in him for? Hi, brother. You know? Uh-huh. Yeah, one of those. That makes sense. Um, South African, born and raised. Probably one of the reasons. And you have a very interesting story. And you were telling some of that story. And it's a rather long story. But I think it's worthwhile to like give people a little bit of the history of how you became into this unique position. We were talking about this before. This unique position that you've arrived in through the various life paths that you've gone on. One of which is tracking lions, 
which is quite interesting. But there's other different tangents that have brought you there. Yeah, I mean, inside the strange Venn diagram of uh, of the tracker. So I guess it begins with um, growing up in the wild eastern part of South Africa. And I grew up on a piece of land that my great-grandfather bought. And he bought it sight unseen after drinking too much gin. <laughs> and it, it had been a bankrupt cattle farm. And he bought it because the cattle had failed for two reasons. One... Um, it's a low rainfall area, and so it was not—it was marginal kind of terrain. And two lions were eating the cattle, and he—he he was a lion hunter, and he wanted to go and put himself against uh, those animals in that consciousness of that time, 1926. A little high on gin, you want to uh, fucking? Yeah, what's go, the biggest what, beast around? What, here? what could go wrong? You know. <laughs> Um, after you've won all the bar fights, you know, yeah, I mean, the, the only thing left is to go after a lion. Yeah. And then actually my, so that was my great grandfather. Then my grandfather had a belief that boys became men through wartime flying, flying in, in wars. Uh, he was a pilot in the second world war or hunting lions. Um, my father and uncle grew up hunting lions. Um, my father claimed he's not a very good hunter, but they grew up and that's what they did. And and so this property was defunct. It was pretty run down. They would go there. They would go and live in mud huts. There was nothing going on there. Um, and then in 1969, my grandfather died. And my father and uncle were left in the wake of this loss um, with all of the family advisors saying, you've got to get rid of that place where you used to go and hunt lions. You know, hunting lions is a bad idea to start with. That place is in the middle of nowhere. It's going to drain you. You've got to get rid of it. And my father stood up in the meeting uh, and from a place very deep inside of himself, he said, we're going to keep it. And the family advisors said, well, how do you plan to take care of your now wid widowed mother? And he said, we'll make it pay. And that's how my family got into the safari business. And what I've always been interested in is in that place inside of him that knew that that's what he was meant to do. Uh, and so these two young boys, my father and uncle, and then very soon after my mother, my father and mother met when they were like 15 and 16, they moved down there and started trying to get this place going. The three mud huts, one broken Land Rover, nothing going on. Um, they would try and convince people to come and stay with them. They would get the odd guest. Um, people would come down. You wouldn't see any animals. Most of the property was scrubland. And kind of nothing was going on. But word got out that there were some young kids out in the middle of nowhere that were enthusiastic about what they were doing. <laughs> you would go there on safari. You wouldn't see any animals, but you'd have fun with these, these like vibrant young kids who lived in a caravan and make you sleep in a mud hut where it rained. They send you outside for shelter. You know, it was, it was rudimentary <laughs> in the extreme. Um, but the real, the real enlightening moment in the story and the one that really affected me was into the midst of this arrived a man uh, sometimes in, in the, you know, the way of chance of these stories. And this man was a man called Ken Tinley, and he was, he was a guy who had dropped out of high school but then been admitted to a biological sciences degree because he drew a picture of a moth with such intricate detail that the dean of the faculty said to him, you're in. He had done a PhD, and during that time he had lived for about a year by himself in this wild part of Mozambique. And during that time he had... He had something inside of him had shifted and he had tapped into the essence of wilderness at a deeper level. He could feel landscape moving inside of him. He could feel the rivers moving in his body. He understood how the moisture moving through the soil informed the, the fauna, uh, sorry, the flora, and then that how that informed the fauna and the animals. And he, he, when he looked at something, he saw the connections between every, everything. Mm -hmm. And he rolled up and he was a kind of visionary and, he, and he, he rolled up at the fire where my family was trying to get this thing going. And he said to them, if you want this place to work, you need to partner with the animals. 
you need to think of the land. Uh, so you need to partner with the land, think of the animals as your kin, and you need to bring the local people with you and, and invite them into the protection of this land. And he started to show them how to actively restore the land. He would take them out to these places where the, the scrubland had come up. And the scrubland comes up because when the rain falls, um, the rain would run off and scrub comes up instead of grassland. And he showed them how to clear it and how to pack the, the, the scrub into these ravines where you were losing the moisture. And as they started to do this work, the grassland started to return. And then animals started to appear on those grasslands. And there was this incredible sense that as they started to connect with the land, the land was coming back to life in front of their eyes. Um, and that's it was a, that's a really beautiful thing <clears throat> even to like start thinking about is and this is something that you were telling at the campfire yesterday when we got to spend some time is ken saw the land not for what it was currently which was arid covered in scrub it was a traumatized piece of land to me he was a tracker you know mm. I, I see a tracker as someone who, who teaches himself to see through things and to see something in particular. And he saw this wild, beautiful place underneath the scrubland that wanted to come back to life. And, it, and I think, you know, getting back to the beginning of the question is, that went into my psyche as a young child. I watched the wilderness be restored and I saw, it, I saw a place coming back to life. And I didn't realize it at the time, but much later in my life when I started working in the healing arts with people, that landscape was alive inside of me. And every person I met uh, who was traumatized, and you would see you know, what you might call the patterns of, of defensive scrub overlaying the core of who they were, you know, I would try and look through that to something more truthful. And I, and I have come to believe you know, the core of what I'm interested in now is the restoration, the restoration of wild places, but also our restoration. What brings us back to life? What brings us back to a more natural harmony? Yeah, it's almost like that became a metaphor. And to go, to really let people understand what traumatized the land is, and you can probably explain this better, but it was the overgrazing of the cattle. Yes. You know, so, so like humans came, added cattle, added too many cattle. Yeah. And then out of their own, what, probably greed, probably desire for more money, desire a, dis, a disassociation with the connection to the land. So all those things, greed, disassociation. Commodity. Commodity. Just, you know, using the land. And, and the land the land became traumatized in a way, and it started to respond. Because it was overgrazed. Overgrazed. And when it's overgrazed, when the, when the rain falls, instead of the rain going into the soil, it runs off. As it starts to run off, the the scrub starts to come up, and what the, it's this amazing thing that you know, the land that is traumatized cannot absorb the rainfall. Just like a person who's become traumatized in some way starts to be unavailable to what they actually need. You know, someone who's been badly abused, for example, what they need is connection and safety, and what is most unsafe is that connection. Mm. And so. So all of that they want it so bad that when they get it, it's terrifying that they might lose it. Or is it safe to open to it? Yeah. And then if you do open to it, what if it goes away? Exactly. You know. Um, so, so that was going on. That was a very big piece. Uh, grew up then on the land in kind of a with a beautiful with a family with a beautiful mission, but it was chaotic. You know, we were we were a little feral, and my parents were incredibly driven, and some of 
some of what it took to get this thing going and some of the loss, losses that they'd had, they just put into action. So we, I, I sometimes th- say that I grew up in a cult of doing. It was mm. just intensity outward and no one felt much. You, and the whole kind of modus operandi in South Africa, obviously is a very difficult and complicated political place. Um, you know, the whole modus operandi was don't feel too much, just go move forward, just keep going. Everyone head down, keep going. And there's a, a great place for that. I mean, South Africans are hardy people as a result. But, you know, when all you've got is a hammer, everything's a nail. It got to a point where that, that doesn't work. Mm. Um, so may have yielded a rugby World Cup. Uh, yeah, listen, it make, <laughs> makes for a strong rugby nation. Uh, <laughs> I never, this is a total side story. But once there was, um, I heard about this, <laughs> this cruise ship that was sinking. And the, the, the whole crew, the ship was on its side. And there were two South Africans in the band. And they were like, they were literally the pianist and the violinist. And they orchestrated the whole escape when everyone else got panicked. They, the, the sort of, <laughs> the pianist and the violinist were rappelling out across this like lilting <laughs> ship and grabbing people and rappelling back to safety. This is so yeah. South African to me. Uh, yeah. That's a side story. Um, <laughs> yeah, but then, and then got into safari guiding. But as a result of the way that I had grown up inside that kind of intensity, lots of encounters with what you might call the edge. Um, there were parts of me that were quite frozen and there were parts of me that I would say were, I was unable to feel in some ways. Well, there Um, was one thing that happened to you that I can really identify with is you guys got attacked through a series of litigation that was not, had nothing to do with your fault. It was somebody trying, it was almost like a hostile takeover. Yeah. You know, where people were trying to come, they recognized after you started restoring the land, after you started going from this kind of ragtag operation of some teenagers having fun, drinking gin, showing them animal every once in a while to actually restoring the land, partnering with the land, all the wisdom that Ken had given you. Then somebody, another group came in and was like, oh, we want that shit. So if we just sue them enough, they'll be bankrupt. We'll be able to take it. And so you got to understand like the, the dark side of the world. Again, greed coming yeah. to do something wrong. And I think that hardens you in a certain way. You start to look at the world like kind of fuck the world maybe you still love the animals but people like yeah fuck people uh, absolutely and what had happened is as you're saying the land had come back to life and the land had become vibrant and in fact um we had started to see this one female leopard very regularly and that female leopard had cubs and she started to allow her, herself and then the cubs started to allow themselves to be seen and so word got out all over the world that there was a place where you could go and see wild leopards and the presence of that cat there, that like most mystical of cats that was allowing itself to be seen, became this incredible allure and people started to come. And people, I'm always amazed at what, f- what flows towards a healing, what flows towards a restoration. Just naturally, people started to feel pulled to it. And it started to become successful. The safari operation really started to go. And then we ran into to this darkness, which was just an absolute hostile raid. Um, it was people just trying to financially run us off our feet with bullshit suits so that they could take the land. And so for 10 years as a family, uh, we fought that. And we had no experience in that world. We had no experience with litigation, which, you know, for the people who've been involved in it, is totally its own world. But for me, it, it, it landed me exactly where you're describing. I didn't want anything to do with this world. Out there in nature, things were honest. Out there in nature, I could understand that. But to actually engage in the world, I, I was totally shut down. Um, 
And into the midst of that feeling of being absolutely shut down, I was working as a safari guide and a buddy of mine told me that there was some, there was a guest coming, this woman who he had taken on safari before and she was, he liked her because she had taught him some martial arts. I had an interest in martial arts. I, I went into this room which where the guides were assigned to certain guests who were coming on safari and she'd been assigned to, assigned to some other guide and I wiped his name off and I put my <laughs> name down, just like one of those. And it, again, like out of total impulse from somewhere inside myself, put my name down and I met this woman and immediately we connected. One of the first things she said to me is that she said, I believe the restoration of the planet will come out of a shift in human consciousness. And I felt something in me go, that, that's my path, whatever that is. Meantime, I'm a beer drinking safari guide and, you know, bar fighting safari guide in South Africa. Which is probably like, one of the reasons why you wanted to learn martial arts. Yeah. Just to make your bar fighting a, yeah, better, a little better. You a know? little better. One of most of my fights by 100 yards. <laughs> um, no, I mean, so I met her and took her out, felt a connection with her. And then on, a, on the third or fourth day, she said to me, um, I can see that you're frozen. I can see that you're stuck. I'm here for you. And I was like, she said it to me, I could feel these structures inside of myself, these defensive structures starting to kind of crumble. And she just looked at me and she kept looking at me and she said, I'm here, I'm here to, you can talk to me. And just like feeling seen like that is this incredible, you know, when that wash of vulnerability comes on you like, oh, I don't know how this goes. But I kind of, I broke and she really caught me and she started to teach me how tell to heal. Us, tell us what she said. When, when, she really, when she really opened that door for you? Because I think that's a really powerful thing. Yeah. I mean, 10 years of litigation, attacked by a crocodile, you know, tied up, attacked by people. You know, there'd been a lot of stuff that had traumatized me. And when she said that to we me... We might need to footnote those and go back. Okay, we can go point. back to some of that. But, yeah. you know, what she... You can't just drop attacked by a crocodile <laughs> and then uh, and, like, leave people hanging forever. We got to eventually make a note to tie, tie back to that. Yeah. Um, she said, she said to me, I'm here for you. I started to cry. I was standing there with my rifle next to my safari truck, just started to cry. Um, she grabbed me and uh, I looked at her and I said, I don't give a fuck about anything. And she said, I know. And then she just hugged me. And that was the beginning of my journey. That was the, my first movement into, into initiating into the healing path. Um, into the path of restoration, uh, inner human restoration. Mm. And from that moment on, um, I started to heal. She started to teach me how to go inward and feel again, how to, how to move towards what felt good, how to come back to life. And, and the kind of the strange thing that happened is I had grown up tracking animals. I had grown up you know, in the art form of how you follow an animal across the land. And as I started to heal, tracking what tracking was started to change for me and i started to realize that everything i had learned tracking out here how you follow the process of getting in touch with your medicine getting in touch with your healing getting in touch with your gift you know one of the things i say in the book is there's nothing more healing than finding your gift and sharing it that's another kind of tracking and all of the processes of the tracker can teach you how to go inward and so that's that was the venn diagram the restoration of the land my own healing uh, of trauma, and then what tracking was and this art form that I had grown up with starting to change and become something totally different to me. And where those kind of three strange things came together, the purpose and the sort of direction of my life started to, to form.
So a lot of this podcast is talking about experiences in the wild. And right now, as I'm recording, Boyd Vardy is spending 40 days in the wild nature. Now, I did that about four years ago. And when I did, I decided that I was going to write what I believe to be my first book. And that book was called Go For Your Win. Now, I didn't know that much about writing a book back then. I just put down 40,000 words of absolutely everything that I would tell my younger self. All of the information, all of the ways that I could keep and track my purpose, understand like what I was here for, how to find and forge the relationships that I would need to support me, how to have that kind of passion and that real why, and then the essential skills that I would need to actually push forward and make those dreams happen, make my win a reality. And of course, how to deal with the resistance that is inevitably going to come on our path when we're ever, whenever we're going from a lower place to a higher place, as Stephen Pressfield says. And that's the process of going for your win. Now, I turned that in and I got some advice from Ryan Holiday and he was like, this isn't a book, bro. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, it's too broad. It covers too much ground. So what I ended up doing is I ended up turning it into a course with practices that you can employ, journal entries, ways that you can unpack this with a digital community. So there's going to be a group of people you'll be able to go through this with and with a guided coaching mentor in Eric Godsey. And this course is now live for enrollment once again, except there's a major difference this time. Normally this course costs $100, but because of the times that we're in, we're offering that course for simply a dollar, which is basically free. It's the way that our cart has to work. We have to charge you a dollar, otherwise we would give it to you for free. And you can sign up and get the same course of course, if you do have the money to buy the course for $100, it's absolutely worth it. And that will help support our team and Eric and everybody that's had challenges financially during these times as well. So you just have two payment options for the same course. One is a dollar and one is $97. And it's called Go For Your Win. So go to aubreymarcus.com slash go for your win. If you're interested, it will definitely help get you on the right track and give you the skills to follow that track all the way to your win. And the purpose of the tracking, <clears throat> so I think a lot of people start tracking because they want to kill. Yeah. Right? Like so your, your old family, they grew up as hunters. Yeah. Now your current family and everybody running Landalozi, it's all about preservation, conservation. Absolutely. It's about finding the animals and helping provide an environment that's as nourishing for them to thrive as possible. So you're still tracking but you're tracking with the outcome being a sense of like kinship with the animals rather than a, i'm going to take this as yeah. a trophy for my ego totally and, and part of what made us unique is we were working with the shangan trackers i think the shangan trackers are the best trackers in the world and every day we would go out and we would follow and we would be in this art form and then we would find animals where no one else would find them. We'd, you know, it's not like you drive along on the road, oh, here's some lions. We would follow them into deep thickets. We would follow them into all kinds of terrain. And we would find them where they otherwise wouldn't have been found. And then we would call in their position and people would be able to drive their safari truck in there and get an opportunity to have an encounter with those animals. And one of them that I talk about in the book is, you know, eventually when we find the lions, people come in to see them and we're standing a distance away 
because um, when you're on foot, the lions are a little bit uncomfortable with it. And you're watching through your binoculars as people from all over the world arrive and see a wild lion. And you see this, the presence of that animal going into them and affecting them. And so it's a strange thing, you know, every morning when we go out tracking, we know as trackers that the success of our business, the employment of the local people, um, it all depends on our ability to go out and follow and find, mm. you know, and, uh, and in that way, I like that the tracker makes a path for others. The, the tracker is the person who sets the direction in a lot of ways. Same with the healer, right? Like same when you're healing yourself, you're, you're tracking your own traumas, you're tracking your own shadows, you're tracking your own thing. And then those become the footprints that other people can follow to heal themselves. Trauma, trauma healed becomes medicine. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you, you have the map, you know, if you, the pieces that you've done, you have maps to those places. And all the clues, you know, all the clues of what to look yeah. for, maybe they're footprints when you're actually tracking in the external. And but what do those footprints look like on the internal? The inter and that's what started to happen to me. Like I just watched the trackers and I started to see all these, th these dynamics, like, one of the first things that you see in trackers is trackers have a relationship with the unknown. They are not programmed towards security. Their whole inclination, when a lion roars somewhere out there, their inclination is to go without knowing. We don't know where that lion is exactly. We don't know where it's moving, but we're going to go without any certainty to go look for a 400-pound serial killer <laughs> that can run the, 400 meter, the 100 meters in four seconds and... And, you know, that's a kind of aliveness, the willingness to go without knowing. And you think about we live in a society that is so obsessed with security. And I've coached hundreds of people now who tell me when I absolutely know what the next thing is, then I'll make a move. It's like towards, towards the track inside yourself, towards your authentic path, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be about beginning without having any kind of certainty. The willingness to start without knowing is going to be key. Um, or the first just little track. Yeah. Right. Like that's the, I think one of the cool things, and as you get better, you'll have a better idea of like which way to go into the unknown. So it's still the unknown. Like yeah. the story you told about Renius hitting like a pretend golf shot when he heard a lion roar <laughs> is like cool because it's like, you're all right. You're going to make a good guess here. Yeah. It's like getting a sense of where that lion roared. Yeah. So tell, so tell how he does it and tell who Renius is because it's a, it's a cool story. So Renius Jampachas Matanjanam Shongo was born under a tree south of the property um, where I grew up. And him and the other character in the book, Alex van den Heerfer, are two of the best trackers in the world. And in fact, they worked as a safari guide team and Renius taught Alex tracking for 17 years. Uh, Renius is the master. He grew up hunting and gathering. This is a guy whose primary way of getting meat as a child was to track lions and then with his brothers run in, chase the lions off the kill long enough to cut themselves some meat. Um, he's just a wizard in the wilderness. He's, a, he's the guy who can uh, hear the call of a honey guide and follow the bird. The bird will lead you to a beehive and then he'll rob the beehive. This is a guy who speaks squirrel. I can tell you, he, he, this is a guy who has incredible <laughs> levels of bird language. Like this is a guy who will tell you the difference between birds alarming at an owl or birds alarming at a python. Um, he's just, he's the man out there. You know, yeah. he's, just, he's the absolute man. Um, and so he was, he was my, my primary mentor in that space, him and Alex. And they, the day spent in the book is, the, is a day spent with him. Um, 
Where was the original question? Well, the original question was, is you guys wake in the pre-dawn hours, and then you hear a lion roar, and he somehow watched on TV people hitting golf shots. And then he's he just he does that. He does this weird motion. Yeah. <laughs> and what he's doing is he's throwing the lion is roaring out there in the wilderness and he's throwing his attention out and he's trying to drop, if you can imagine like dropping a stone. And that's why he liked the golf thing. He's dropping a stone on where he thinks that lion's roaring. He's gauging by the sound, he's gauging by the baritone, or immediately he's tuning in to information. He he's getting a sense of where he knows lions like to lie based on his experience. And then he says to us, Somewhere around Lex's pan, which is a waterhole that we know that we've named. Somewhere around there, that's where we should start. He's giving himself something to aim at, you know, and there's no certainty in it, but he's giving himself a general direction. Mm-hmm. And then we go there, drive the safari truck out there, we get off, we start walking around in big circles. There's a myriad of information laid down on the land. There's tracks of where Impala have come down to drink. There's tracks of where a warthog has run away. You can see the tracks of a giraffe and... Amongst all of that information, he's trying to pick his track. And in fact, trackers have this thing, they call it developing track awareness. And one of the things that he used to do with me when I was a kid is he would take me to a game path and he would say to me, walk down this game path and tell me what you see. You walk down the path, you come back, you say, I, I see the tracks of a herd of impala. He would say, I'm fine. Young boy, go look again. And I'd go back down the path and I'd come back and I'd say, okay, now I can see... Um, where a leopard has walked down the path. I can see where an owl's wing touched it. And he keeps sending you back. And each time you go down the path, it's like you're getting more information out of it. And that, Im- that idea of there's information there, but you have to teach yourself to see it, mm-hmm. that became absolutely critical to me. You know, so you've got to go without knowing. And then slowly, you have to teach yourself to see your track. Um, you have to start tuning into something very specific to you. And no one can tell you what your track will be. That is just going to come out of attention towards what feels, towards a different set of metrics inside of yourself. And you know, one of the primary ones will be the somatic expansion, just things that make you feel like you want to lean forward, things that make you feel open. There's something in you that's going to be essential there. Noticing the things you're curious about are going to give you a direction to your track awareness. Noticing things that make you forget about time, noticing things that when you're doing them, um, there's no need to eat or drink. You know, those sort of things that engage you will be essential to you in some ways. Mm. But you have to develop your track awareness. And, and then you'll start to need first tracks. So this is how it started to come to me as a 23-year-old thinking about healing. Like, okay, what's, this, what's the first track? You know, with, with the first track with trackers, it's like, this lion has walked here somewhere in a wilderness about the size of Switzerland. He's on the move. He's on the move fast. Um, lions will walk you off their feet. They, they move, you know. So how are we going to catch up with him? Like he could have gone anywhere here. And you'll watch the tracker just get the first track and then the next first track and then the next first track and then the next first track. And the goal, and this, this may be the most important lesson ever for me is to continuously dial down the infinite possibilities and maybe one that I've battled with the most because my inclination was to be able to see the vision, but it was hard for me sometimes 
to like get the first action step and realize that sometimes the first action step is going to be miles away from what you know the vision could be. So I had to work hard on the first track. What's the next tiniest thing we can do towards where we want to go? What's the next smallest step we can take? The next smallest step we can take. And that's where Renius was just phenomenal. And I've also been thinking a lot about track selection. Like when he goes out there, he has, he has an amazing capacity to look at a track and gauge this is going to be this is this is going to be difficult but he's real he's realistic enough with himself to really push himself to say this line walked you a long time ago but i think we can get it you know and one of the things he always says in the book is <laughs> he he shatikuma we will get like this line walked you a long way, time ago but i believe i can we can get this and yet he's realistic enough to know like this is this track is too old, we're not going to go for it. Mm. And I'm super interested in, at the moment, also because maybe where I'm at in my life, of the dynamic between like reaching, like reaching, really reaching beyond what is comfortable and yet also being realistic enough to say like, we can get there. It's going to be a huge push, but it's doable. As, you know, not, as opposed to just being like um, kind of inane about it. Like yeah. just getting that balance right between the reach, the push, um, the reach and the push and what's real in some ways. And also the flexibility to adjust and also persevere, right? Because yep. like halfway through, you could go six hours in and instead of we will get, the, it might be like, we ain't going to get it. <laughs> you know? well, it sometimes happens, you know, you, you're on the track of a rhino that you've been tracking for two hours and you thought it was fresh. It can be deceptive. And then you see the track of a genet cat, which is this not, nocturnal cat we get out there in the middle of the rhino track. And you know this rhino walked at midnight sometime and he's got six or seven hours on us you know and and then it, it is it's part of it is being in touch enough to say this is not worth continuing to follow right like that dynamic in life like where do you where do you hold on and push and where where is the lesson to hold on and push and where is the lesson to let go mm. you know and how do you how do you be in touch enough with yourself to know where those moments are well i think you got to go until you know you go until you know. You go until you fucking know. Yeah. You go until you see that see that one mark. And then to not be so stubborn to ignore it and come up with some other reason. Uh, maybe a series of beetles landed and it looks like this footprint that we saw. Let's keep fucking going, you know, because we're able to trick ourselves yeah. if we want something too bad. And if we're too outcome dependent and we're not just actually willing to read the signs as they are. Like accept reality as it is instead of trying to put our own ideas upon that reality yeah. and stick to those. And the, the, the whole dynamic inside of tracking is dynamic, including um, including like an incredible willingness to just try things. You know, one of the things we talk about in the book too is if you go tracking, if you go out to find a lion or to find a life that feels more alive to you, 100% you're going to set off on that journey and you are going to lose the track. That's a part of tracking. And it's important to know that because if you've let go of the safety of the known and you've gone out to, to seek something that is unknown and yet you feel called to, when you lose the track, it, it can be so terrifying if you don't know that losing the track is part of it. They can just be like, fuck this. I'm, I knew what was going on back there. I think I'll just head back there. Mm. But to know that you will lose the track, that is part of it. And then the trackers will go back to where they were last on track 100%. So you might ask yourself, when was the last time in my life that I felt absolutely on track? What was I doing? And when I've asked this, people to quest this question to people, sometimes in their 50s, you know, they'll say something like, you know, in my third year of college, 
I was doing this and this and this with these people. And that was the last time I felt totally on track. Mm. So it's a, you can ask yourself, when was the last time I was totally on track in my life? What was I doing? Who was I with? The other thing that they do when they lose the track is they just start trying things, which is so freaking counterintuitive to a school system in this culture that ha- will have you know at all costs and where you, where, that relies on absolute certainty in which you know. Tracker loses the track. They just start trying things. They check a bit of open ground up ahead there. Uh, start listening to animals alarming. Uh, cut down onto a game path. Walk a big half moon and don't find the track. They call that the path of not here. Anywhere where you're not finding the track is helping you refine. <laughs> people really understand that one because people have spent a lot of time in the path of not here. <laughs> but you know, anywhere but the where path you're, of not here takes earnest. It takes, like, you really have to look yeah. to know that it's not here. But it's part of the path. And... Yeah. And it's refining down where that animal did go. Okay, he didn't go here. He didn't go here. We can, and that's starting to help you refine in. Yeah, um, I did. I did a lot of path of not here. I, you know, I still do path of not here. All that I think we probably will forever, right? Yeah, and if you're gonna make up your own life, you know, if if you're gonna make up your own life, and that is what the tracker does. The tracker doesn't look at what the culture has to offer and say, "Oh, I'm that. I'm a this. I'm a this." They make up. They make up a part that is supportive to what they uniquely have to offer. Um, and if you're going to do that, you're going to spend a lot of time on the path of not here. <laughs> and you know what's funny is people will use that. People will use all of your path of not here's as like slights. They'll be like, yeah, remember when you tried that, bro? Remember when you made nail polish for men? <laughs> that was a stupid idea, right? I was like, yeah, it was. That was the path of not here. Like, I got it. Yeah. I recognize we, we that wasn't a good business. We were trying things. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it didn't work, you know? But you know what? Other things worked. Yeah. And like, that's okay. Yeah. Like, I don't have to have a 100% fucking track record to like figure nice. out. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. I don't have to have that to like be, you know, to be qualified to do with something else. Nobody has 100%. Yeah. And like, you know, good luck finding your own path um, if you're not willing to do that. Yeah. Sit in the unknown. Spend a lot of time, you know, on the path of not here. But then something starts to emerge. You get back onto that track. It starts to pull you forward. You start to feel like being on the track is actually play. And to watch Alex and Renius move on that track, you know, it's so dynamic and you can watch them go into a kind of energy state. And it's like they can feel the lion moving up ahead of them. And they can tell subtly how it's vectoring through the bush. They're doing a lot of things. They're doing a lot of difficult things and they're making it look easy. Their eye is catching the ground. They're vectoring off trees up ahead. They're getting a sense of how the lion's moving. Between the three of us, the track is passing seamlessly. If the lion cuts, I'll pick it up. If he moves back another way, Alex will pick it up. Communicating with hand signals with each other. Um, If an impala alarms way up ahead of us, it grabs our attention. Um, Birds, eagles, vultures, everything is talking to you. You know, and there's this, inside of that, there's this incredible feeling of starting to be in flow with the animal, being in flow with the track, almost being in resonance. You can feel the movement of the animal through the track. The track will tell you the cadence that the animal is moving at. So you can see if a lion is moving fast and then you balance your speed with the lion. And as you start to balance your speed with the lion, you can feel that lion moving up ahead of you. And it's like you're going into resonance with with that very thing that you are seeking. 
And then, it's like the lion is your purpose to a certain degree. The lion is pure aliveness. You it's know, aliveness, purpose. purpose. It's, yeah. it's what you're here. It's what you're here to do, and, and to collapse that into singular, like a singular purpose, tracking that thing. And and it should scare you a little bit. You should respect yeah. that thing up ahead there. You know, sure. you should. Uh, it's probably nothing that's more terrifying. You should desire to find it and be be have a and be afraid of finding it and have enough courage to keep looking for it. Yeah. Um, but there can be moments when you're tracking, you know, the track will, will cut down into a riverbed and you can feel it's starting to get fresh. And you can actually feel like this. Oh, shit. The, I'm, about, yeah, to, the, I'm the, about to get the there. The lion's track is on top of the tracks yeah. of everything. Sometimes you'll see the lion's tracks on top of the tracks of an antelope and then you see the antelope. You know, and it means the lion has walked past you after the antelope that you're looking at 300 yards away. So you know you're starting to get very close. And then 200 yards ahead of you, a monkey starts alarming. And then 50 meters ahead of that, an inyala, which is type of antelope, starts to alarm. And the tracks are telling you a story. You can feel the animal. The animals are talking to you. And you start to feel yourself go into an absolute flow. It's like everything is speaking to you. And in those moments, you know, it's, it's in the realms of the track and the tracker start to disappear. There's no trying in it. Your eye is catching the track. You can feel where the animal is moving. You're making great decisions of, of, as to where it cut. You're just getting confirmation as you go. The whole field is talking to you. And, and I've always thought that when you start to really line up with that, that lion that is calling you in your own life, um, and you start to really go into its resonance, and you start to really understand what it is, there is this feeling of everything of life itself starts to guide you. You're not trying to create, you're not trying to make it happen. It's starting to show you. And that's where it gets, to me, it gets interesting and, and hard to talk about. But the feeling that instead of you doing anything, you can feel what wants to happen. And because you're in harmony with what wants to happen, it's coming through you. It's coming towards yeah, you. Yeah, it feels, it feels like a pull rather than a push. You know, like magnetic. A, at the start, it might be a push. You know, like you you have some signals. You're pushing. You're walking the circles. You're looking. It's a very active process. Using your cognitive reasoning, deductive reasoning, your mind, your sight. You're you're, you're pushing to try and find this, and you're beating the path and the, and the dedication to walk in these circles and keep looking. It's a push. But then you're on. Once you get on the track, get a little closer. It's like the lion is pulling you towards it. And, and you absolutely feel that shift in a track. And trackers by nature have a, have a very energetic quality to them. They have a sense of that. Like you can feel they can sense energy. It's almost impossible to make Renius backtrack an animal. Like he, because <laughs> the flow of energy on the track is like wrong for him. So <laughs> occasionally he'll walk back, get a sense of where it came from. But if you said to him like, let's backtrack these animals for fun, he can't do it because the, the flow of energy <laughs> is wrong. Um, but once you get into that situation where everything is talking to you, it's absolutely magnetic and there's yeah. no trying in it. And, and, and inside of that, that's where tracking becomes like any kind of really deep practice where you go into state. It starts to teach you how to go into a state. Absolutely aware, attuned, and present inside of that. So Onnit is probably best known for our performance supplements, Alpha Brain to help your cognition, Shroom Tech Sport to help your energy and endurance. But there's also a whole line of essential nutrients that we have, just things that you really want to have in your body to support that holistic health. I think of it like stocking the shelves at Home Depot if you're 
body was a home. Like you want your body to be able to pull all of the right things off of the shelf and utilize them in all of the biochemical reactions that are necessary to optimize your health. So some of these ingredients are the earth-grown nutrients, which are phenomenal. It's a blend of antioxidants. It has greens. It has reds. It has all of the different natural nutrients and ingredients that your body needs that contain all of not only the minerals and some of the vitamins, but all of those enzymes and small micronutrients that you can just only find from the natural sources like a great greens powder. And then, of course, there's the key minerals. That's something I take absolutely every night because of the calcium and magnesium, which has had amazing benefit for sleep and it also has some other great ingredients in there as well like molybdenum iodine some other crucial nutrients for the body and hormone regulation and just support of overall health we have vitamin d which everybody knows about vitamin d if you don't have enough vitamin d you're going to be in bad shape it's important for your mood it's important for your immune system and we have these great sprays which taste good and they're mixed with mct oil so super clean super great way to get vitamin d strombone you know strontium is i think one of the most underrated ingredients for skeletal health so that's what we utilize to create our strombone formula then there's joint oil. I squeeze that in my mouth every night. It tastes like a tangerine dreamsicle. And it has fish oil and curcumin and borage oil and avocado oil. And it's just a great source of not only those omega-3s, but also those other things that help support the body's natural inflammation response. Just helps calm everything down and give you the nutrients you need. And lastly, of course, active B packed full of methylated B vitamins. And the important part of methylated B vitamins is that your body's actually gonna absorb them. And they're involved in so many different processes in the body. It's just amazing to really stock your body full of all the right B vitamins. You're just gonna feel so much more energy, so much more clarity. So I encourage you guys to check out all of those different key essential nutrients. So go to onnit.com slash Aubrey and you can save 10% on all of the essential nutrients and everything else. Once again, thanks for supporting the podcast, onnit.com slash Aubrey. And I think there's another interesting metaphoric moment is sometimes when you confront your purpose, your purpose there it feels incredibly threatening just like the lion can sometimes you'll you'll come up upon it and it'll be a stare down and it'll be a moment and, and you know i think you told some of these stories but talk about that moment when you come face to face with a lion that's there and like what you need to what you need to do in that moment lions are lions are most dangerous on two occasions but i must say that generally their number one modus operandi is to get away from you. That's like most of the time what a lion will do, like any great martial artist, is inside of an opportunity for contact or conflict, their inclination is to get away from you. They're dangerous on two occasions. The one is when they on meat, and the second is when they have cubs. And obviously when you go out there every day, sometimes they can ha have had an interaction during the night also. Maybe they got into a fight with other lions. So sometimes you can run into something where, you know, a lion that you've tracked before got injured during the night. And that can also be very dangerous. Now, normally what will happen is the first thing that you hear, um, if you haven't seen the lion before he sees you, is you start to hear the growl. 
And that growl can ramp up in volume, you know, from like a basic warning to like, I'm going to fuck you up. <laughs> and it sounds like someone started a dirt bike in the bush up ahead of you. You just hear, and then usually you'll, you'll see the lion and the body language conveys to you with absolute certainty that you are now, you've now crossed the boundary. And one of the things that I love about nature is the animals are completely honest. They communicate with you in a, com in a non-verbal language. I think of it as a language of presence. But you will see that lion drop his head, the ears flatten, the whole body tightens, the teeth come up into a snarl and revealing these in, you know, terrifying teeth and the tail lashes. But the thing that really gets you is the look on its face. The look on its face is you've come... <laughs> too close now and it's and the, and it conveys this energy out of it and then that's it saying you know you're too close now if you're if, if you've already sort of crossed its boundary then it stands up and it's hunched over it keeps its head down and it starts to walk towards you and then that walk starts to get faster and then it starts to bound and when it comes at you you know a big male the main will fly as it comes towards you and the teeth are out and the tail is lashing and at that moment you feel something fundamentally old in your biology just absolutely go exponential it your your visual acuity goes through the roof it's like you can see every hair on that lion's neck the teeth the whiskers the 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 look in the eyes and Often if you're with other trackers, you, you know, just grab a hold of each other. And in that moment, you have, you have exactly one option, and that is to stand. And so you know, what, we, what we do is you try and condition yourself by running that scenario mentally through your head. Um, then if you, do, if you track lines enough, you get charged enough. And so you start to get, get a little bit of experience in those moments. Um, drop your energy. I bend my knees a little bit. I breathe out. <sighs> to let my, my, my energy move downward. Um, and then you stand, you meet the gaze. You might even take a step forward to push your energy forward towards the line. And you stand, you start to shout. Hey, hey, sometimes you'll put your arms up. And 99.9% .9 of the time, if you can meet that charge with your presence, that line will stop. You don't have like a special thing you say besides hey? Well, you know, uh, <laughs> my uncle always used to scream at animals in Afrikaans. He used to, uh, which is one of the local languages down. He scream, "Futsack, futsack!" I don't know why he thought that was like the term that would <laughs> would help. You know, uh, usually some expletives come out. You know, some <laughs> yeah, language yeah. that uh, is not good for podcasting, but it's um, it's good for this podcast but, but probably. The, you know, uh, there was one occasion where a lion stopped so close. We put the brakes on. Sand flew into my mouth. Um, and so, and that's when you, you know, you're having a fucking rough day when a lion <laughs> throws this charging lion, puts sand in your mouth, but you got to stand and it's an exercise in presence and you are conveying a language to each other in those moments. It is directly telling you you've come too close and you are conveying back that you are in fact dangerous and you have to let that lion know with absolute certainty that you are dangerous because he's got hundreds of years of being hunted on the plains in his biology by, by a shape that looks a lot like yours. And so, you know, it asks you a lot about your courage. And, you know, one of the things that I write about there is that I think one of the dangers of, of what we're living in now is a danger of no danger. Mm. You know, uh, neuroses can be a substitute for real fear and suffering. But in that moment, it's such clean fear and it, it activates you and it, and it formats you. Um, 
and it teaches you a language of presence teaches you how to how to communicate without words i think there's a couple things that i, I want to talk about there one is the honesty of nature mm -hmm. because people are so fucking dishonest with how they represent like authenticity is very hard for human because i think of our social dynamics and the evolutionary biology of the tribe the advantage mm -hmm. of playing different roles and playing different things you know you look at a like survivor for example yeah people are full of shit constantly on that right like and there's all these passive aggressive tendencies like Lions aren't passive aggressive. They're not going to be like, yeah, I don't really care about you. And then just turn around and like go to fuck you up, right? They're like, they're not playing games. You know, they're not going to purr yeah. and then just turn on you. No, and that's one of my like pet peeves is like all of these shows that you see on TV, you know, it's like death week in nature, you know, deadly creatures that'll eat you in nature. Everything is like pumped up to like these dangerous things in nature. Nature is honest. That lion, if you are getting charged by that lion, you've come too close you've missed something, you've crossed a boundary, and now he is conveying to you where the boundaries are. But all the animals will communicate to you with their body language, and nothing just up and tries to kill you. They will tell you um, where the lines are, they will tell you where the boundaries are, and if you are sensitive and if you pay attention to the energy they're conveying to you, it's, it is one of the safest environments in the world. And if you're in control of your own energy. Yeah. Because if you freak out and run away instead of standing strong and shouting expletives and Afrikaans or whatever you need to do, like the the lion will eat you asshole first. Yeah, like you got to get it right. <laughs> you got to get it you right. You got to get it right. And um, and if you do, you're fine. And in fact, you know, I lead retreats. I take people tracking, and I take people. We track lions on the retreats, and I'm a hundred percent confident, uh, working with Renias and Alex, that we are as safe doing that as you would be walking down the street somewhere because we obey the rules we're good at the tracking we get we get the decisions right um we stay ahead of the safety you know so we we have the experience to know like you know it doesn't matter that you've come on a tracking experience that terrain is not good for us to go into so we're not going to go there you know mm. we make humble decisions and and in and that, in that way nature is, is will communicate with you 100% so the other thing I want to talk about and kind of veer into is how this applies to, because you studied with an indigenous healer, and the really beautiful thing about the healer that kind of aligned with you was that he had kind of a tracker's mentality. And in the way that he would track things that were happening in ceremony, because he was holding ceremonies, and you were in some ways like you were to Renius, an apprentice tracker, mm -hmm. but you were an apprentice healer with him as well and, and learning from him how he could read a room, how he could read someone. So talk a little bit about that because I think there's that, there's so many, there's so many uh, crossovers between that path. And even, even if we go to the metaphor of, you know, that moment of standing in the face of your potential, which is the scariest thing. It's like, we're not afraid of, like the thing that we're most afraid of is how powerful we actually are. I forget who said that quote, but it's, it's the truth. It's like so when we're face to face with that lion, our potential, do we have the courage to hold or are we going to run away from our true power? Like all of these metaphors go in, but it also goes, you know, what's really interesting, it goes all the way through the internal as well as like through totally. the same healing process. That which you learn externally, you also learn the same thing internally. Yeah. And again, like this weird sort of Venn diagram that came together and that I believe comes together when you start to do that work of finding your unique track in life um so yeah i met him uh in a ceremony in california the first time 
And I remember he walked into the room and almost immediately what I saw as someone who had grown around trackers was a person, was a tracker. I could see by the way he looked around the room that he was seeing things in the room that other people weren't aware of. And he had a particular way of noticing. And, and in fact, in the first encounter that we had, there was a young girl in the group who'd been very terrified about coming to the group. And he walked in and he had hugged everyone and then he sat down and he looked at her and he, he said, I can see where you're holding it and it's okay, I'll be with you. I'm going to be with you through all of this. And immediately, so I was, I was aware that he was aware and in, in a way I felt like he was showing me like, oh yeah, there's information here. But then, uh, so then started to get into some of that work. To me, once the ceremony started, um, I was back home because um, the pretense went out of the room and people became more natural. And that unspoken language that I had grown honest. up with. What's that? They became honest. They became honest. People are honest as shit in ceremony. And the language of presence. And it wasn't yeah. what they were saying. It's the language of presence. It's the way yeah. they were sitting. It's the way different groups would constellate. It, the way everything was moving, I understood what was happening in there through hours and hours of knowing how to read animal body language. And we're just animals. And so it was all there. And so in my first ceremony... I started to facilitate. I didn't even know that was what I was doing at the time. I started to create little moments of energy, little bits of facilitation, you know, little little dynamics that open people up, that move things. And it, it just felt like, oh, I'm just this is totally natural to me. But what was amazing about him is over a few years, I was just in ceremony. And then slowly he started, our relationship started to deepen. And I started to understand the space more and more. And then he started to offer more to me. And I was interested as a tracker too, you know, and I remember things like, um, you know, we, we, well, everything to him was tracks. And then I started to see them. Um, the tone of voice conveyed something, the look in the eyes, when you hugged someone, the texture of the body. Uh, I remember we went through a whole phase where he would catalog cries for me. You know, <laughs> when people would cry in ceremony, he would say, listen to the tone of that cry. That is very particular to someone who's been neglected. Listen to the tone of that. That is, that is a cry of grief. That's loss of a parent at a young age. Um, and so he was, he was exceptional at imparting that. And then also um, awareness of the feeling in the room. You know, the feeling was what almost primarily what he was tracking. And, and that became, you know, everything is like we can sit down and we can talk, but the real conversation that's happening between us is the feeling between us. And in fact, when I first said to him, uh, I want to apprentice. And this was still when I was in my own healing process. He said, you're saying that, but you're not open. And I said to him, no, I am open. I, I want to learn from you. <laughs> he said, you're suspicious of me. I can, so when, when the suspicion goes, and it doesn't matter what you say to me, it's when, it's when the feeling is right between us. And that was really interesting to me. And then, as, then when I started apprenticing, and this was, this was one of my favorite dialogues that happened between us, unspoken dialogues. Um, very early on, he created a code between us. So there was a time when he had his back to me and I was watching him work with someone. And then he turned and he looked at me and he said, I wanted you to know that I felt your energy and your gaze on me. And then he turned away. And in that moment, he established a type of code. So then when we would work together, um, we would work in the energy 
So, and there were some processes that I would approach and he would close the energy and I, it wasn't a process. I was, a, it was something personal happening between him and someone. So mm -hmm. I wasn't allowed to be, he didn't have to say it to me. He would close the energy. And then other times I would approach and he would leave it open and I could come in and be a part of the facilitation. And then often when something was happening in a ceremony, I would catch it and then I would look at him and he would look at me to say, you caught it. And so, we, so all through, you know, a six hour ceremony, um, he at a moment where I caught something, he would he would just look at me with the look he had given me to say, yes, that's it. And that went on for years. Um, and he, almost the entire mentorship was through shared presence. And some of what I realized through being with him and being with Renius is that, man, one of the great gifts of my life was to be mentored. And mentorship, my mentors never told me how to do anything. They just let me be with them. And inside of the masculine, I, I came to believe that the masculine experience of mentorship is through absorption. And, and literally, the absorption of the presence of another man's body, in a way, being near their body and, and the way they move, it was like a current, that, a presence that moves there between you. And Renius never taught me how to track. He let me be near him while he tracked. And that's how it traveled. And, and from Alex to myself, too. And then I was never... So they teach by being. I was never taught um, by teaching. I was only ever taught by being by these men who came into my life. It's really, it brings up a lot of memories for me because I remember the first, the first person I really considered a true friend, like someone who was like, oh, this is my brother. And mm -hmm. also in some ways a mentor brother, like a big brother, mm -hmm. but also a really dear friend was my friend Bodie Miller. Mm -hmm. And he was a fantastic athlete, Olympic skier. But we we connected because I always felt like I could track, even in like the most ridiculous hedonistic party setting, I could track things. I mm -hmm. could track, like I could track when there was trouble starting. Like I've never, I've had a lot of friends who've gotten in street fights. Mm -hmm. Never once has that happened when I've been around, except for one random occurrence that happened so fast, and I was by myself that there was no time to track it. It was just like, I got amb we got ambushed. You can feel it. Like you in the bar, you can feel it 10 minutes before I can it starts. Feel, I can yeah. see it. I can see where that is. I can see where the fun is. I yeah. can see when the energy of the night is dying. Yeah. I can see all of the things. I can see when someone's too intoxicated. But nobody else around me could see that. So I felt alone. I felt yeah. really lonely. And then I met Bodhi in Vegas. And it was one of those nights. And it's, it's like 4 a.m. We start talking in the club. We have a lot of affinity in there. And we start noticing some things. But then we start going through the casino. And I'm tracking. Yeah, and we're all drunk, but like I still. We're, but the I'm, awareness. I'm, the awareness is there, yeah. and I'm tracking. And then I'll look at him, and he'll like nod at me that he saw the same thing. And then he'll see something, and I'll have seen the same. And we we just start noticing that we have the same kind of track awareness yeah. through this very human landscape. And that formed this bond of like, holy shit! Well, you're in the second conversation with each other. Yeah, not this one. This one. You yeah, know? and and. I mean, one of the things that we noticed early on taking, teaching people to track was that people who had grown up in dangerous houses were instantly onto tracking, fast onto tracking. You know, they were like tuned in. If, so if you grew up in a dangerous house, you knew what night lay ahead of you by the sound of the door closing that evening. You could tell like, oh, here it comes. Or, or we're going to be all right. Or like you, you said this yesterday, I think, or the sound of how the keys hit the table. Yeah. You know, someone comes in, keys hit the table. All those little cues in the house have a feeling to them. And so, and that is because if, if you had to keep yourself aware like that, 
you develop that kind of awareness, energetic awareness of the space. Um, and the great trackers have that and it translates. And in fact, we're all trackers. It's just a, a question of developing it. Um, and those those pressures early on, actually, like you're saying, it's a great point. It exacerbates that because my childhood wasn't as brutal as many were, but my dad emotionally was so fickle that the subtlest thing that happened two days ago, the subtlest intonation of my voice, a joke that was taken wrong, would erupt in this angry rage yeah that was quite traumatizing for oh. me as a young as a young boy oh, that will that will develop your awareness incredibly Ooh, i was like yeah. sharp as shit i knew i knew like i knew yeah. how to read situations i knew because i had to know when it was coming i had to know what was causing it Bodhi had a different situation in which he was just largely left to his own devices in new hampshire yeah it was like the parents had absolute trust for him to just kind of bang around from like four years old and figure shit out, climb a mountain, ski down it, come home when he wanted, like sort his shit out. So he just, he was actually taught by nature yes. and the dangers of the, of the actual real world. So both of us were kind of taught to track in different ways and diff with, from different ad adversities and different challenges. Yeah. And then that type of awareness, it, when you start doing healing work becomes, you know, trauma healed uh, starts to become the medicine like th that awareness becomes an absolute gift in that space yeah and another thing that you mentioned is about that that unspoken consciousness that you can feel from somebody and this is for for some people this is already broaching into this woo woo category because yeah. the one thing i'd like to say is the first thing that i think talking to you makes you realize is there's so many things that you may be noticing subconsciously that you may be ascribing to some ESP kind of sixth sense, but it's not a sixth sense. It's actually just the practiced awareness of intricacies of detail that you're not even aware of. They become like subconscious yeah. awareness. I mean, you, if you walk into a ceremony, I, mean, I, I, you, I bet you can do this, but if I walk into a gathering now, I've gone into enough ceremonial gatherings and worked with enough trauma that I can see what's in the room um, to the point where like, people say, would say to you, how did you know? How did you know that this is what happened to me? How do you, it's, it's like, it's, it may appear mystical, like you just knew, but it's like, it's all there. You know, it's written. Um, you teach yourself to see. You teach yourself to see the tracks. But, and, and I do think that there's like, the more you technically develop as a tracker, um, then it's technical into mystical you know? and that's all right so that's the next place exactly where i was going because i was sitting in ceremony with hamilton souther who's one of my great you know shaman mentors and i remember we're, we're just one-on-one -on -one in in ceremony together and it was this he was opening a dieta for me which mm -hmm. is a spiritual practice where you make a communion with a plant and so it was a very focused thing and I'm, I'm very grateful that he offered that to me but he says um i need your consciousness with me now and i was looking at him and i was like I wasn't paying attention to anything else. And he's like, no, 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 no. Like, I need your consciousness. Mm -hmm. And then I could feel myself go like, okay. Yeah. And then he goes, thanks. Like the minute, like yeah. the minute I felt that, like, like the instant I felt that shift, like he was just like, thank you. And I was like, oh, like there's a level of something that you can see. Whereas like if, if you had a camera, you would have not noticed a fucking thing yeah in my body i was looking at him the same way I, maybe there was some subtle thing but that was the first time there was really approaching mystical i mean that where it was like 
oh, he noticed when I shifted something on like a spiritual level. Yeah. I opened something deeper that was beyond anything that was observational. And that was cool for me to recognize too. And so it's like, it's almost like you're still tracking, but there's just another octave or another dimension that you're tracking in. Yes. And the unseen, you know, the unseen becomes, you know, it normalizes as you start to become more aware of those feelings in those places. It's, it, I guess it does start to go into the realms of woo, but it's it becomes it's very normal in a lot of it becomes of normal yeah, in, once in, you've experienced you spend it spend a lot it of time normal. in ceremonies it becomes normal yeah yeah and it just becomes this is the other realm that a lot of people haven't been to but we've been to it and it's normal and it has its own telltale signs it's a feeling it's not something you see with your five senses that it's something that you just feel you yeah. feel the opening or you feel the closing just like your you know your shaman could feel when you had doubt or could feel when you were looking at them or could feel all of these different aspects yeah and then you know if you go to like otto schramm at mit who's building on um you know some of the original management consulting books and you know his whole what he has arrived at is presencing you know and one of the primary things that they're talking about is leading from the emergent future you know so it's like it's woo but people are starting to really understand you know deeply within the structures that leading from the emergent future. It's like, I can feel what wants to happen. I can, f- uh, we have a sense of where this wants to go. You know, uh, reinventing organizations, like high levels of how people run companies are now. It's not, we set a goal and a strategy we go. It's like the company is alive. It's an energy field. And we are listening as trackers for what it is asking for to continue to evolve. And, and so, I just think this is an, a very natural evolution in some ways. Damn, that's a really important thing for anybody running a company or starting a company is like <clears throat> continuing that tracking process through an organization like it's an organism because it is. It's an energy field. It's an energy field. It's and it, it has a collective purpose. Like any organism itself is an organization of cells, of specialties, of organs that are all working towards creating one organism. Same with a company, same with a school, same with any kind of group gathering that you're getting, it becomes an organism, it becomes an energy. And it's like in a ceremony, it's like, here's my presence, here's your presence. You know, so we, we have our individual presences and then we create an energetic together. And then sometimes you'll add in some intelligences, you know, our external intelligences into that space via substances. Um, and then the ceremony is what you follow, that, that shared intelligence, you follow it. Same thing, same thing in businesses. And I, just, I, think it's, I think it's interesting that people are arriving in the, at the idea that the highest levels of this thing are not to run it, but to let the track pull you, to let it mm. uh, start to pull you towards it. Yeah, great wisdom there. Let's talk about, let's, let's cut into talking about some of the really challenging experiences because you had some stories from guests who had challenging experiences that ultimately became their most catalyzing transformative experiences but I promised people I'd go back to your crock bite and I promised (laughs) people I'd go back to some of these things in your life so talk about how some of the challenging traumatizing experiences like the crock bite or like some of these things how you look at these things now you know I, I look at all of the things that happen to me now as initiations um, they, they, 
At the time they froze me, but as I healed, they became the gifts of the medicine. Uh, when I was, you know, I would say that there were two major things that stacked on top of each other. And this actually goes back to something we were talking about earlier. When I was 18, my family was physically attacked uh, in Johannesburg at a time when South Africa had a lot of violent crime. And it was about a four and a half hour ordeal. Um, you know, I saw my sister and my mother tied up uh, on the ground around me. Um, we were surrounded by men with guns who were threatening to kill us, who were clearly not, you know, in a good state themselves. And I woke up to a gun at my head. And so I, re I remember... Because like, you were knocked unconscious? I, I, no, I was asleep when this whole thing started. Oh, okay. mm -hmm. um, so I woke up to gunpoint. So it was point. like home invasion? Yeah. And, yeah. My, and my sister sitting on top of me, and, just, and she was squeezing me. She was saying, be cool, be cool, be cool. And I woke up and I, and I was surrounded by these guys... And I just felt like the most insane uh, adrenaline go through my body and took me a long time to get that shake out of my body. And there was almost like, um, I can't ever describe the quality of that fear. The, the, like, I've been afraid, I've been charged by lions, but that fear was on a totally different level. Mm. Um, and it was fear for you know the people I loved around me. But what was interesting about it, going back to an earlier point, is during that weird, terrifying experience, um, I couldn't read the body language. I didn't know what these guys were going to do. I couldn't. It wasn't honest. You know, they were, it was, we're going to kill you. We're not going to kill you. We're going to, I couldn't. They probably didn't know themselves. Yeah, I couldn't. They, it was not honest in the way that an animal is honest. And I right. remember like really feeling that. So, th so that happened. Um, and then about a year after that, I was down at the river and I'd taken some folks down there who, was, who were visiting and there was clear water running over sand and I was with a, a tracker by the name of Soliam Flongo and he had crossed the river at a shallow point and he was on the far bank and I was on the near bank. And a tree had fallen out of the bank and it had created a sort of a little hollow. And as I sat down, I sat down in the water and I, I assessed the situation and I thought the water is shallow here, I'll be fine. I can see everywhere. And if you've ever seen a crocodile go underwater, it sinks and then you can see it, you can see it. And then within like two inches, you can't see it. Mm. I thought it's shallow enough that I could see, but he just had that little extra two inches on me. And my legs were dangling in the water and the people were around me and the croc came out, grabbed me by the right leg and pulled me. And as I started to go into the water, I just remember throwing my arm up and by total chance caught a branch above my head and the branch like stuck and the crocs started to shake me i started to scream at the people next to me get away from the water get away from the water bit me a it second to time a roar, or did it... it it was just shaking and trying okay. to pull yeah went to bite a second time and my foot went down its throat and it spat me out i pulled myself up into the tree you uh, gagged it I gagged it. I gagged it. <laughs> this this little pin down here. <laughs> um, so I pulled myself up into the tree, and I remember coming out of the water and looking over my shoulder and seeing my leg from the knee down just absolutely mangled. And I also remember having an image of myself from like outside myself coming out the water. I got sort of across onto the bank, and I was thinking to myself, you know, a croc, if he thinks he can get you, he'll try and get you a second time. And right at that point, my tracker, Solly, started coming towards me. And he was w w wading through shallow water. And then he got to the deep section of the channel. And he could see me lying on the bank with a mangled leg. And he knew 
that in the water between him and I was a crocodile. And he just came straight into the water, boom, waded in up to about his waist, came through, got me, grabbed me, and he dragged me up onto the bank. Um, and up onto the bank, I had a look at it again. And I said to myself, I'm, you know, I'm never going to look at that again. It was just horrific to look at. And then this voice started ringing in my head. It was my uncle's voice from when I was a kid. My uncle used to drop me in the river and you get washed down the rapid and then he would pull you out. And on one occasion he had left me and I had got washed away. And so it, by the time he had pulled me out, I was like a shocked, like, you know, eight-year-old. Mm. And he said to me, buddy, when you panic, your brain turns to sponge. Never panic in the bush. <laughs> it's probably a good motto for life, right? Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but up, like, sitting up there on the bank, I heard his voice, your brain will turn to sponge if you panic. So I started to calm myself down. My tracker gave me a shirt, wrapped the shirt around my leg, got the people together, calmed them down. Um, did my own first aid, called in a medivac and managed to get myself out of there. But it was a, it was a very strange experience having another creature try and ingest you, and uh, which is, I guess, a rare one in this life. And then also the difference between like, there was so much blood being lost. Eventually I put a big blanket around it and the, I had my foot up on the dashboard and the blood was pouring out. Uh, and there was, I re distinctly remember thinking that my concept of, you're gonna die one day and oh i think i'm dying like you know that or that day has arrived mm. you know i remember like things collapsing a little bit between the concept of dying and thinking like oh it could be happening now um if i lose enough blood um so that you know that was that one and these those two experiences were stacked pretty much on the back of each other uh then that court case we spoke about and so it was a fair amount to integrate for a, you know, for a 19-year-old. So it seems like with the croc encounter, there was the the proximity to death, which is a great teacher, right? Yes. Like it, it allows you, gives you some idea of the preciousness and the ephemeral nature of life and, and oh. a lot of like beautiful lessons that mortality come from that. Mortality checks. Yeah, you know, those mortality checks. Running to your checks. mortality early on in your life. Yeah. It's like the memento mori stoic, stoic saying, like, remember that you're going to die. Well, yeah. when you come that close, it's hard to forget. And you have a permanent reminder on your leg yeah. if you ever think that you're invincible and invulnerable and immortal and you're never going to die. And I'm very difficult to track yeah. because I have one foot that goes forward and one that just books off to the right. <laughs> Where is this guy going? It's yeah. become like a metaphor for my whole life. <laughs> But, yeah. you know, going back to what you're just saying, one of the other things, like that early, early mortality check in your life, you know, it like really ramps up that desire to, to like live. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing that, as you're saying, is just coming to me, you know, when I started getting mentored in my early 20s, I sat in so many groups with people in their 50s and 60s. Um, and it was a phenomenal thing. And it's, and it's a lost thing in this life to sit with the with people of different generations and actually see what they're carrying see what they're holding and to see that some people at at 50 and 60 were realizing that they had never gone for the thing that called them and the regret and you know the willingness and the courage it was taking to start at that phase of life would you say and that was the top regret that they'd never gone to the thing that called them uh, the feeling that I got, you know, there was grief, there was loss, but those were almost clean, you know, they were mm. clean, they were part of life in some ways. 
the, the thing that hurt much more to me and the thing that had really sucked the life out of someone was the feeling that they had known that there was something for them and they had never given themselves the space to pursue it. That seemed to etch a depth of regret that was, that was not healable through the support of the village. You know, mm. if someone had lost and, and was grieving, to be in a group and to have that held, there was, you could feel the, the, the cleanness of the healing. But the regret for having known and not been willing or not been able um, through whatever it was at the time, that really sat in people. And it was beautiful to see, and obviously there's no judgment, and it was time to start right then at, at you know, 75. It, it was never too late, but it, was, it, it, it spurned something in me to like try and live this thing called life um, as best as possible and to take the shot at failing, you know? And, what I, and as I said to you, like once this path emerged to me, um, it was 10 years of flailing around you know, wanting to be involved in the restoration movement, wanting to be a healer, having some safer options, but wanting to go for a life that felt like more mine. And, you know, no one really wants to, no, you're not ready to be a healer and people are not super open to you as a guide in life when you're 25, rightly so in some ways. But so there was years of like feeling called and not knowing how that I had to sit through. Um, but the, but having these experiences was like, I'm going to keep going for this. I know that my path is to track, my path is to ceremony, my path is to restore, my path is to guide. And so somehow it, these things will come together in some way. Yeah. I want to dive into something that we touched on yesterday, which is I think both of us are deeply committed to the transformation of consciousness which will lead ultimately to the transformation of the earth because the humans as are as the ones that know how to live out of accord with nature mm -hmm. whose minds can allow them to do any variety of thing it's the greatest gift and the greatest curse of humanity it is the actual biblical story of being cast out of the garden where we have eaten from the fruit of the tree of knowledge which is really the tree of the mind being able to become self-aware and become make choices that are out of that so to actually heal that is the necessity to healing the planet to a certain degree but what's what's interesting is to then think about like how that plays out so i think i've always thought like the upstream thing is consciousness mm -hmm. change consciousness but i think a lot of people have some misconceptions about privatization and the privatization efforts of conservation versus you just you know leave it up to the right government and the government does it and so you know you have some direct experience with restoring land mm -hmm. and running you know running the land property in that way and and we were talking about that so if you could kind of share your thoughts on how like the privatization effort could actually be productive to the preservation of our resources yeah and if if I may, I'll start a little bit upstream because I think that the restoration movement occurs uh, in a kind of infinity loop. We have to restore our relationship with wild places and restore wild places. When we do that, we become well again as the people. You know? And the other side of the loop is we have to heal as people. Mm. And as we heal and rediscover that it's not more we're looking for, it's more of what we really want, as we start to heal ourselves, we become a part of the, of the opportunity to reconnect and restore nature. So there's this loop that happens. 
the restoration of the planet will come out of a shift in human consciousness. Well, one of the things that I'm seeing and I'm saying is that to be a tracker of your unique gifts, of your medicine in the world, is a kind of activism. Because in my experience, people who do the work of going inward and finding their track, people who touch that place, um, there's a few characteristics that start to emerge. One is the, when they touch that, uh, a desire for simplicity seems to come online. Um, they want to simplify their life. There's a natural inclination to return to nature and connect with nature. They become interested in experience over stuff, over consumption. They want to create rather than consume. There's a natural pull towards um, service that starts to emerge. And all of that, um, they, they stop fighting the revolution. You know, they stop fighting the system and they just abandon the system into a different way of living. And then their life becomes a kind of marker that their life, just by living it, without trying to promote any kind of activism to anyone, they live differently. And people say, well, if they are living like that, then it means it's possible to live differently. And so well, what I say towards the end of the book is that the tracker finds a different way of living. And what we need right now more than anything is different models for living. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where the inner work will come from. And a lot of people touching that naturally start to go back to nature. The, the second side of it is, I think what we are looking for is a psychology of restoration to wash over the world and to touch people and to awaken people to what is important again so that people all over start reaching out to nature at every level of society from the billionaires who start to preserve huge tracts of mountain ranges and forests um, to people who start understanding that the creation of a garden uh, on their small um, veranda of their apartment is connecting them back with nature. But inside of the mindset of returning to our relationship with nature, um, I think there's a tremendous opportunity a and a physical opportunity. So those two things together um, are where it's going to pivot. We, we, right now, I, th I think I used the example last night, we're still buying sports teams and Picassos. And I'm interested in when people start to realize that the art that we really want, the where we really want to spend our money is towards restoring. And I think that the rallying cry is to say, wherever you are, whoever you are, let's all adopt the mindset that we are the generation of restorers. We are, we are the ones um, who have to start putting this thing back together. And and I see like a groundswell movement of people talking about it. already there's, it's probably the largest, as Paul Hawkins says, unnamed social movement in history this desire in people to reconnect. Um, but I think we have to start saying it more overtly. Let us be the generation of restorers. Let's take up that mantle. Um, at any level, whoever you are, if you are without mission, your mission is to find your medicine and begin to restore. You know, that, mm. that, is, that is what I believe is being asked of us now. It seems like a, a lot of people can get caught up in the, in the politics of it and then just... I mean, I bet there's a lot of people who argue argue for climate change and argue against people who are opposing climate change and blah, 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 but have never planted a single plant in their backyard or in their house or anything like that. Like, well, do both if you, know, if you want. If you feel called to this you know, constant cycle of political yeah. nonsense, do that. But maybe plant some stuff too. You know, maybe like preserve some acres too, if you can. I you mean, know, like start doing some real things. 
I, I think, you know, po policy is probably important, but, but I don't think we can rely on the leadership anywhere in this current structure to take us where we need to go. This is going to be a movement of individual, born out of individual isolation towards individual, towards a collective individual longing um, for something different. And the reason it's the tracker is that part of the challenge that we're facing is that there are no models um, you might want to join a movement. Well, guess what? There's no mo movement to join. You have to, you have to make it. Mm. And so what I see is that w what we're doing as trackers, as wayfinders, as navigators into this thing is we are reaching for the as yet unimagined and we're trying to pull a new way into form by, by living it. You know, we're reaching for some, for, there's no model for it. You know, someone asked me a little while ago, how did you get your job? I would like to get a job like that. You know, you can't get this job. You have to make this up. <laughs> you know, that's the, and that's really the point. Yeah. You will not look into the structures and find what you're looking for. You, you, will, you will reach for a different way yourself. And we, reaching together, will, is, is what I want to give my time to. And, and there are amazing restoration projects in the world, um, physical restoration projects. I think we need to expand them. And, you know, I may be totally out out there on this one but i think that the one thing that all of the algorithms do not account for is collective awakening you know if we can if we can kick the rudder on this thing yeah. into a big group awakening many many people coming into simplicity and the feeling of we have enough stop wanting stuff um i th i think we can literally reflect a different world into form and people i mean then there's already theories that account for that like the tipping point theories these things where things do not go yeah in you know they they have hyperbolic curves you know where like something hits and then instead of it going in this gradual line where it's just like you know plodding along at two percent growth all of a sudden it's two percent two percent two percent 30%, 50%, like it just ramps up when it just hits this tipping point. And I think that's possible for collective consciousness. Did I ever tell you about the bees try to kill me? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so I became super interested in bees, as one does. Um, <laughs> as one, do. Well, in South Africa, there's this beautiful thing. There's this bird called the honey guide. The honey guide will lead you to hides. And so when you follow a honey guide, you're in touch with this ancient thing, a bird that will come to you and lead you to a beehive. Then there's the honey badger, which just as a spirit animal is just amazing, you know, just running around looking for a fight, yeah. get bitten by a cobra, <laughs> die for 30 minutes, forget you died, get up and start like operating again. You know, they just, so there's a whole thing around bees. And then I started looking at bees and the way that they work, you know, inside of this collective and... And which is really interesting. Well, I'll get to that. And so I wanted to go and understand bees from the inside. So I decided I would get into to beekeeping. And I wanted to go and like work with the hive. This is African bees, wild African bees. So I went to this. this they local call them killer bees. Killer bees, yeah. <laughs> so, so I go to this local beekeeper. Meantime, there's a couple who had come to stay at the lodge. And at that time, the Ebola thing was happening in North Africa. So they had been writing to me saying, we want to come, but we're terrified of Ebola. And I was writing back to them saying, listen, Ebola is thousands of miles away. There's no Ebola in Southern Africa. You're good to come. And we had been backwards and forwards. Eventually, they had decided to come. So they came on safari. And I go to the local beekeeper, this guy called Simon Sambo. And I say to him, Simon, can you show me beekeeping? He says, uh, 
he's got this beautiful voice. He says, I, I can, but I have to tell you, I was not formally trained. I'm like, no, but you, you, you look after the bees. He's like, yeah, I have a few hives. I will take you. So we go out and I'm just like wearing like gym gear. And he, he opens this box and he gives me a suit. And when I put it on, the suit is a bit short for me. So like this rang a bit of a bell. I was like, Simon, it's a bit short. He says, uh, don't worry, you can borrow my socks. So he takes his socks off and he gives me his socks. And now we're in like our beekeeping suits and we start trudging towards the bees. Now, as you approach the bees, um, it's like they can sense your intention on them from a long way away. They understand that unspoken language. They can feel energy on them. So as you get close to the hive, you hear, it's like someone's like turning up the volume. And then he got his crowbar out and he jacked the lid off this thing. And 70,000 of the most enraged bees came out of that. And I was covered in a collective energy of profound hatred and you should not have <laughs> fucked with us and it like shimmers around you it went dark they like started landing on the visor and i just felt like this is worse than a lion charge like the feeling of this energy around me and they're revving at like high voltage so i said to him simon these bees are he says don't worry they will calm down meantime he hasn't brought the smoker with him because i said to him don't we smoke them he said no it makes them afraid a fire is coming so now they are going ballistic. And then one found the weakness on my sock and it stung me. And I remember seeing this black like cloud that was hovering over me. Stop. And then as one, they went to my ankles. Oh. And they started to sting me outrageously. So I started saying, Simon, Simon, they're stinging me. Simon, they're stinging me. What does that do? What's it? fucking death all around. Simon, they're stinging me. They sting me. He says, he says, uh, uh, maybe move away. So I start like moving away and they stay with you. <laughs> we get out into the clearing and I'm screaming at him, Simon, they're stinging me. They see me, he says, don't worry, I will help you. And he breaks a branch and he starts beating me with a branch. Bah, bah. So I'm standing in a clearing in the beekeeping suit, just getting lashed by a beekeeper, still getting stung. I say, Simon, they're still stinging me. He says, wait, I will get the smoker. So he runs off. Now he gets the smoke and he starts getting elephant dung and trying to get it going. Then he comes over to me and he blasts me with the smoker. And the first like blast hit me in the face. So I got a deep inhale of elephant dung smoke. <laughs> now my lungs are burning and I think, well, I'm, I'm dying. I'm like the venom is starting to like cause a tightness in my lungs. I'm still screaming. And I say, Simon, they're going to kill me. They're all around me getting stung hundreds of times through the socks. There's like a, a, an anklet of bees on me. He says, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Run for your life. <laughs> so I start running in the beekeeping suit with him next to me. And we're just running through the bush. I say, where must I run? He says, run to the Land Rover. We will drive away from them. So we run to the Land Rover. And in our beekeeping suits, we get in and we start driving away. And we're powering away and we come around the corner, both of us screaming, ah, they're going to kill us. And in the vehicle coming in the other direction are the couple who were afraid of Ebola. <laughs> and they check these two dudes screaming in like hazmat suits, like just drive past them. <laughs> it was like the weirdest experience. But, but in the beehive, and what I got out of it was like, oh, you want to learn about the power of the collective? Like this is the power of the collective. You want to understand the ferocity of what can happen when the collective is united? Try this out. And inside of the hive, every bee reacts to local stimuli. They do what they know to do. 
and, and every bee stays attuned to what they know to do. And as enough bees do that, the collective algorithm fires. And suddenly, as one, out of individuals doing what they truly know to do, they move as one and the whole thing shifts. And so I, I have to believe that that is the model. Every individual getting under the patterned response of modern life into the track of your life, the integrity, attend to what you know to do. And when enough of us can do that, uh, we'll fire the algorithm. And if the bees are anything to go by, that can produce, you know, a terrifying kind of intensity of, uh, of transformation. Well, let's fucking go. Let's do this. Let's do it. I think we are. I think we are. Yeah. Yeah. Collectively. I mean, that's what a, what a great story and what a great, like great metaphor to use because you just reflect that in the opposite thing instead of the ferocity and anger that you've seen in like the French revolution or seen in these other collective movements with hatred as fuel. What if it's love and what if it's that what desire bring to, that same intensity? to get pulled towards your passion and your purpose and the service of others and bring that same ferocity that the bees had to hate and turn that into love, which and is it, an even more powerful me, it, force. And to me, it, even inside of that, while it was terrifying for me, that was love for them. Yeah. They, they were acting in the most loving way to their collective, you know? Yeah. And, and, it, and they gave me such a lesson. And I lay on my bed for uh, three weeks with my feet in ice buckets. <laughs> um, but um, Some lessons yeah. come with a steeper <laughs> cost than come, others. Come with a bit of a sting. I think it was pretty much worth it for this story, actually. So I'm it's, grateful for it. It's true. You know that whole thing, like nothing bad ever happened to a writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no doubt about it well boyd thank you for everything man thanks for coming yeah. out here to austin thanks for writing this book uh, everybody it's called the lion tracker's guide to life i really highly recommend anybody listen to it on audible too because there are going to be parts you're going to want to take notes but uh you're just such a good storyteller man it's just it's great to hear you narrate it and do all the sounds and tell all the stories it's, yes, thanks, it's beautiful thanks man. so much for having me it's been great to be here and and you know be with the austin community it feels really good beautiful man yeah thanks so much thank you so much my brother take care everybody peace thanks for listening to boyd vardy and i tell stories and talk about life and once again if you're interested in finding your track definitely go to aubreymarcus.com slash go for your win check out the course we have to offer there and of course boyd vardy's book a lion tracker's guide to life i can't recommend it more highly especially the audible version Thank you so much, fam. Love you guys. I'll see you next week.